Okay, good morning, everyone. Good morning. I wanted to, I want to build on a theme that we started talking about last week. We hinted a little bit at it, and I hope to talk about a little bit more in the future as well in the next in the next uh, series, I guess. Uh, and I want to start by talking about like how our society, how wonderful it is to be living, you know, in today's times. You know, when you I don't watch television, but if I were. You see, like, how, you know, what makes news? Only the bad things make news. Only the, you know, the market's going to crash, you get onto CNBC, right? If, if, if you just say things will be kind of the way they always have been, that's not a story. You know, if there's a disaster, or if there's an earthquake, if there's a government a tsunami, or, like, those themes kind of are the ones that we encounter uh, in our purview. But really... What is it... That wants us to see all the bad things. Well, I think it, good Yeah, I think that's just that's just the human condition. It's that we we love being terrified, right? And we love. It's weird. It's bizarre. But you know, like I I, I think and I, maybe I've said this before, but I think that we are living today in the most peaceful times in in recorded history. Uh, the amount of, of of peace there is in the, almost everywhere in the world is astonishing compared to kind of relative to history. And you say why that is, and I'd say ironically it's probably because of, you know, the stakes being raised. It's, it's a really weird thing to think of nuclear weapons as being the greatest cause for stability and peace in the world, but that's probably true. That's almost, it's almost undeniably true. Uh, but of course it's counterintuitive. Proves that deterrence works. <laughs> it does, yes, that's right. But we really, it's remarkable times to be alive where the, uh, the, um, uh, the, the increase in... Uh, in in life expectancy and the advances in medicine and the uh, accessibility of food and, and clean water and uh, vaccinations and medicine. It's just a remarkable time to be alive. And then like that, I feel like collectively, if you look like big picture, uh, as a species, there's been this, this trend over the past couple hundred years, and I think it's certainly growing, uh, of trying to do good in the world. And, you know, like, uh, the idea of, of, of even equality. So that, of course, is a dangerous word because it has political undertones, which I don't want to get to. But that, that idea, like the idea of, of, you know, all humans are created equal, and thus we all have a right to trial and jury. Like, these are ideas that are very, uh, they're very uh, transformative. They're very innovative in the greater world, and certainly uh, outside of, of the Jewish sphere. But this, this trend towards the welfare of your fellow and just this positive direction, I would say, the world is going, uh, is what people are fond of calling as progress. And last week I mentioned that the word that we call tikkun olam is the same word, has the same meaning as the word Mashiach. And by the way, a third word for that is what I call progress. I think that all these ideas are linked and I think it's ironic that we have Jews and non-Jews, religious and, and not religious, that kind of are all pushing towards the same goal, and they're not even aware that they're kind of teammates. Uh, you know, and I, I, I think that it's, it's, you know, there's an obsession amongst young people in America for sure, uh, towards this idea of, of, of equality, of, of helping the less privileged, of doing good to your community, giving back. 
Uh, and they're not even aware that what's really motivating them is this drive that we all have as humans to make the world better. Uh, and in Judaism, this has very deep meanings and uh, very kind of universalistic uh, implications because we say that the idea of our nation, with the focus of our nation and the focus of our religion and the goal that has been set out for thousands of years has been towards getting more and more and more like this. And, you know, the question that maybe you could have asked is that, well, how is it all going to happen? And that's, you know, interesting trying to map it out, how it's all been happening. But, you know, it's, as Jews, we're like, we're used to being depressed, right? We have this ghetto mentality, it's called. Like, you know, there's something, there's something like uh, inspires us when things are bad, ironically. But I think it's a good time to think about how kind of good things are for Jews. Yes, it's not perfect, and of course there's a lot of ways to, 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 to change, and Europe is a disaster for Jews. Uh, and even America, in America, where the uh, synagogues are suffering, and, you know, it's, it's delightful to spend time in a vibrant shul with kids and learning. But, you know, if we're going to talk reality, and we like to do that in our class, we, we have to realize that, to recognize that there's really a, a crisis in American Jewry. Um, a demographic crisis, an institutional crisis, uh, and certainly a, a crisis of, of identity, right? Where, where, you know, where Jews are, uh, unfortunately, is a trend towards even going against Israel, which was unthinkable uh, 50 years ago. Uh, but... We, in the Holocaust, <coughs> 25% of the Jews in this country did not want to... Immigration. Yeah, and that's actually not new. I'm, I'm actually doing a, a, a kind of an, a, a restudying of, of, of the past thousand years of history. And there's been many times, especially over the past thousand years, where Jews were expelled from certain countries, of course, most notably Spain in, 19, in 1492, and Portugal five years later, of course. Uh, but they went to certain other Jewish communities, and they were you know, treated with xenophobia. You know, Jews against Jews, it's crazy. You know, they were worried that they would take our jobs and they would kind of uh, influence the, the relation we have with the, with the country, with the community. So that's very, very unfortunate. Uh, but I think if you look really big picture, which I'm trying to do that because if you look small picture, it's very hard to, you know, there's a lot of problems, of course, we're not quite there. We really see how the mission that our nation has stood for and still stands for and was founded upon the principles that were founded upon are making their impact on the world. Um, and I want to kind of, kind of just really explain how this all works. So, you know, we're saying that Tikkun Olam, Mashiach, and progress, secular progress, really are all trying to get towards the same thing. And not only that... We say that the, the mission of the Jewish people and the role that the Torah plays is to usher, is to expedite, is to hasten this development of, the, of, 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 of our people and our, and our world. Uh, because you think of the Torah, and certainly a lot of the myths in the Torah, they demand that we be insular. They demand that we um, restrict ourselves in, in doing a lot of things and prohibitions and lots of laws and all these details and it's very hard to kind of wrap your head around the meaning, the, the, you know, the, the bottom line meaning behind all of this, you know. How is it possible that me shaking a lulav on the holiday in the sukkah, that's contributing towards world peace? 
But we say that. Not only that, and I mentioned this recently, but um, a student of mine asked me, he's like, I want to go, or why is, it, why, is it more, why is it better to save, to, to observe Shabbos, why is that better than saving a thousand kids in Africa? That was his question. And I was like, really thinking about it a lot. Like, is he right? Mm-hmm. You know, and, 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 and I think it's a good discussion. Like, what's more important? What changes the world better? What changes you more when you help uh, the underprivileged? And maybe, you know, you can, you know, for, you, get, you send some vaccines, whatever, you can really save lives. Uh, and you, but we, when we talk, we, we talk about the mitzvahs and the Torah and how important they are and how transformative they are for us and for the world. And I was really thinking about this a lot. And 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 you would seem, you know, the argument I think is very logical to say that yeah, you know, if you save a thousand kids, like you change lives and you change the world, really. And I'm not denying that, of course. And perhaps in a vacuum, that is greater then, you know, one Shabbos versus 1,000 kids, I think, you know, most of us would choose to save 1,000 kids, even though they don't necessarily have to be in conflict, which is a little bit why it's a theoretical question. But I was thinking, that this may sound a little radical, but I really think that, you have to th- hear me out here. I think that when you are encountering a problem, and when we talk about Tikkun Olam, we're admitting that the world has a fundamental problem. It's a broken world that we need to fix. But when you're talking about addressing a worldwide universal problem, and even when you're addressing a small problem, there's two ways to encounter or to combat that problem. There's, there's, uh, way number one is to you know, find all the symptoms of the problem and treat them independently. So we have a physician. The physician is trained to not just look at the symptoms. Okay, the, kid, the guy has hives and he's coughing. Well, let's fix them independently, Right. You know, uh, this breaking out, well, let's do some skin care for that. And he's coughing, so let's take care of something. No, you try to look at the underlying problem because you fix the problem and then the symptoms go away on their own. If you just treat the symptoms, you're not actually helping the patient. We look at the world as a, as a sick patient, basically, right? Uh, we look at, at humanity, at the world at large. It's a broken world. And, you know, it, of course we look at the positive side of that, how we can contribute towards fixing it. But let's think about how we diagnose it. Like, how do we diagnose the problem? Well, well there's evil, there's war, there's, uh, you know, there's hunger, there's famine, uh, there's um, um, uh, car accidents and heart attacks. Like, a lot of things that we can enumerate that are problems. And, of course, there's pollution, and, there's, and there isn't enough clean air, and there's, uh, uh, right? there's a lot of things that we could talk about. And I think the mistake that we make sometimes, or that we tend to make, is that when we see this overwhelming problems just barrage, and certainly if you watch television, you see it uh, right, right, right there in your, you know, in your eyeballs. Uh, but you encounter the problems, and you're like, oh, gosh, we have to help someone who's sick. Certainly, of course. Uh, oh, gosh, we have to... This, this, there's, a, there's a famine. Let's talk. What do we do about that? And, and as a society, we're constantly trying to stamp out the various symptoms of the problem. As Jews, you know, we're the physicians, so to speak, right? That's the, it's been a Jewish tradition for thousands of years for mothers to be proud of their Jewish kids who became doctors, right? <laughs> That's the pride and joy. Why? Because we're also the spiritual doctors of the world. And when we look at the world, we see one fundamental underlying problem that is underscoring 
all the other problems, and thus we fix that problem, and everything else falls into place as well. What's that problem, and how do we fix it with the mitzvah? So, the problem is like this. This is the problem. Well, th- you know, we kind of have to kind of dial, dial the clock back uh, to creation, right? Who made the problem? God made the problem, right? Who made someone sick? God made them sick, or at least God allowed them to become sick, certainly. The problem is, is that our world, the way that we, even the word, the word world meaning, who knows the word world in Hebrew? Olam. olam. The word olam also means obscurity. Our world obscures God. The Talmud tells us the world is compared to darkness. If you're in darkness, complete darkness, you have no idea what the reality that exists, what it is, because you, you have no way of encountering it. Our world obscures God, and that's by design. That's by design. The Almighty placed us in a physical body with physical senses, with physical encounters and physical needs, and that really dominates our life, certainly at the beginning of our lives, and it interferes with our ability to see anything beyond that, anything, you know, yeah, metaphysical, anything supernatural, anything like, and, and we have to kind of train ourselves to expose the idea of God in the world. We say, as Jews, that that is the fundamental problem that we're trying to fix. Not only that, we fix that, and then everything else in the world, the pollution and the hunger and the climate change and the, uh, everything, everything, everything else we fix. And incidentally, I would say that uh, humanity, and I mentioned this a little bit earlier, but certainly Jews, with a greater propensity than anyone else, have an innate desire, drive, to fix the world. That's why in any mission, any movement, certainly, that's going to take us on, right, to fix the world and help the problem and help the poor and feed the, feed, you know, feed the hungry and heal the sick and, you know, let's... let's Stamp out cancer, make cancer history. Someone was wearing a t-shirt here, make cancer history. <laughs> right? All these are, uh, almost all of these are either spearheaded by Jews or Jews are fervent followers. You know, you talk about Marxism. Marxism was a religion. It was a religion founded by a Jew whose goal was to make the world better. Now, certainly the goal didn't necessarily connect with the methodology to achieve that goal. But it's interesting to note how we see a, a totally secular movement founded by a totally secular religion. In fact, he was baptized at the age of six. Yeah, he wasn't. Yet, there's something Jewish about his mission and the fact that it, 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 it captivated certainly a lot of Jews. Jews were, that's, you know, even Hitler always said the Jews were the communists and the communists were the Jews. They were the, they were the, they were the same. Because we are inspired if you tell us we could change the world, we're inspired. And I would make this connection, loose though it may be, even though that's debatable, between Bernie Sanders, right? And we're not talking politics now, but this idea of let's try to fix all evil, let's try to make things better, make things right. He's a Jewish anti-Semite. Well, okay. So you, so you see someone who's Jewish, who has this drive towards fixing the world, but he's totally dis- he doesn't even he's not even aware how those two are connected. And we see and you look at efforts to try to improve the world and Jews are at the forefront.
And the reason why is because as descendants of Abraham, we have the Abrahamic gene. Abraham started this all. Abraham was the first person to take upon himself the mission of saving the world, of fixing the world, of progressing the world, of stamping out the evil that totally permeated his world. He was the first one that did that. And he accepted upon himself and his descendants to be the people whose national mission, whose life would be dedicated towards this goal. And indeed, the Torah, we say, is the Torah is the manual for fixing the world. And the question that I posed earlier hasn't been answered yet. How is it possible that the Torah brings us the fits in the world? How is it possible that we have that Shabbos and that's impactful in a way that this argument is even worth uh, uh, discussing in an academic forum as to whether or not that's more impactful to the world than saving a thousand kids? Now I'm saying it's an academic argument, but I think there's room for the argument. Now hear me out here. What's the problem? The problem in the world is the world obscures God. God's not clearly evident. In fact, one of the definitions that Talmud gives us about God, roe ve'eno nire, sees but is unseen. God cannot be perceived by our physical world, right? with our physical tools. We can't. It's obscured. And because it's obscured, and the goal of the, of the world is to fix that, is to undo that. And that problem is manifest by all forms of evil, right? If someone was aware of God, they would, that would influence their behavior. Not only that, because we are unaware of God, God pokes us until we wake up. We blow the shofar in Rosh Hashanah, right, to awaken us up from our slumber. We, we we're sleeping, we're blind. Now we, have, we, we, we ignore God, and we blow the shofar to try to wake us up. But God also has his chauffeur. You know what God's chauffeur is called? It's called cancer. It's called hunger. It's called tsunamis. It's called hurricanes. It's, it's, these are all wake-up calls to humanity. And instead of taking the lesson and heeding the clarion call of God, God's chauffeur, so to speak, we try to we ignore the message. And we say, oh, well, let's fix this problem. Let's fix this problem. Oh, let's fix this problem. And this is the human Gene, but primarily the Jewish gene of saying, let's fix, let's fix like Abraham did. And we're trying to fix, and we're like, and anytime you fix this, something else happens. And you fix that, and something else happens. You're saying if we had this wonderful utopia where everybody loved everybody and all this stuff, all the disasters would be gone. Well, I'm saying uh, the utopia is, is demonstrated by our recognition of God. That would foster that utopia. And thus, God would find it no longer necessary to jostle us awake and blow the chauffeur in the ears to try to wake us up. Well, this is, I think this, this is a transformative idea. So in a weird way, anything that you do towards fixing the problem really is going to have ripple effects in these symptoms of the problem. So in a weird way, I think there is, I was, I was thinking about this, I, mean, I don't have a conclusion, but in a weird way, I was thinking when my student asked me which is more impactful, I think there is room to make the argument that what changes the world on a grander scale when someone has Shabbos, and we spoke about this last week, what does Shabbos mean? Shabbos means I am not in control. I have no creative 
oversight on my life. All the acts that demonstrate humanity's dominion of the world, for a whole 24, 25 hours, I'm going to cease. And thus, I'm accepting upon myself the fact that my power, my capabilities, my control over the world is superseded by God. I'm only because God allows me to do that. Thus, I am bringing this obscurity a little bit more clear. I'm making the fact that God is real. I'm fixing the problem a little bit. In my world, in my community, I'll cut the second, Debbie. In my community, I am demonstrating Right? with my life and with my efforts, the fact that God is real, and I'm showing that with my behavior. Thus, I'm fixing the problem, and thus I'm minimizing the God's need to awaken us as a society. Yes. Given that we have a responsibility to the world, if the decision is that keeping the Sabbath is, your, is the winner on this argument, then does keeping the Sabbath mean that you have no responsibility to do anything further? No. No. So we're, we're told, the Mishnah tells us, very famous Mishnah. The Mishnah is actually, it's, when people quote this Mishnah, they don't actually know where it's from. Um, but the, the, the verse, uh, the, Mishnah, the words of the Mishnah says, Chayv Adam Lomar Bishvili Nivraha Olam. A person is obligated to say, the world was created for me. The where this comes from, I'll give you a little backstory here. The story of where this comes from is when the Talmud is talking about the laws of capital punishment. In order to enact capital punishment, you have to have witnesses of whatever deed is being uh, you know, alleged uh, against the, the defendant. And the Mishnah recounts a, a speech of intimidation that the court would give to the witnesses to make sure that they're not lying. Because the witnesses come and say, we saw this guy murder someone. Or we saw this guy uh, worship idolatry, whatever it is. And we want to put him to death. You've got to be careful. You're about to put someone to death. And you have to realize that one man, Adam, right, the whole world came forth. And the, fa- the power of a single person, a single human. And thus, uh, and it, it lists a bunch of reasons, the fact that uh, the impact of one individual. And thus... What do we know about one individual? If, 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 if all of the world is for one individual, what's the responsibility of, the, of every individual? Everyone is like the world was created for me, but the, what does that mean? What responsibility does that place on my shoulders? The fact the entire world is my responsibility. So certainly now, we don't believe in saying you're done. You know when you're done? You're done when you're dead. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? That's when you'll sleep. That's when you'll catch up, right? You know, that's, that's me time. You know, that, that's what it means, me time. Uh, and indeed, that's, that, that's, a Jew, that's, a, that's a Jewish attitude. We, we say, um, Adam le'amal yulad, the verse says, man was created, was born for toil. And you look how much the Torah outlines for us. You know, it's a very exhaustive regiment uh, of, of work, of responsibility. And it doesn't stop. You can say, oh, I did my part. I did my share. You can't do your share. You can just say you're doing your share. You know, I'll give a crazy, uh, a crazy example. You know, let's say we were there and the trains are heading to Auschwitz. Well, what, what do we do? We pull people off the train, right? Well, what if you pull one guy off the train? You save the world, right? Mm-hmm. Well, what's your next responsibility? Blow up the tracks. Well, or, or pull off more people. No, blow up the tracks. Maybe, or blow up the tracks. That would be you an know, example. Trains. That's fair as well. 
right? But you, that's also true, right? Right. The point is, is that you cannot say we. Our mission is too critical for us to say we were done. We we did all that we need to do. We checked the box and let's move on to something else, right? It is the life goal of every Jew and certainly the life mission of our people. And we cannot we cannot exonerate ourselves by saying, oh, we did our share, right? When we're dead, then we could kind of assess the impact. It does seem sometimes, though, like it is an overwhelming task. Of course. You just wake up in the morning, um, there's a zillion things with which one's attention can be drawn. That's true, and that's why the mission, and by the way, those things are, 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 are indeed an extension of this obscurity that's obscuring your mission in life. Uh, but I'll tell you what the Mishnah says. Back to the Mishnah, Pirkei Avot tells us, Lo alecha hamlacha ligmor. It's not on you to make sure you get the work done. However, that's, that's right. You're not, you're not free to say, well, I'm, I'm exonerated. I'm free to go. So we have this. Yes, we know that the mission is as grand as the world itself. But we're, and we, is it possible for one guy to do it? No, it's collectively as a people, and we inspire collectively as a, as a species, we accomplish that. But, um, but we can't say, oh, I did, I, I did my share. Uh, and I think uh, just to follow up on what we mentioned prior, we look at, um, at the Torah and the mitzvahs as being our guidebook towards doing that. And if you look at any mitzvah, or almost any mitzvah, I'll say as a caveat, especially if you remember what we said, spoke about last week. Every mitzvah, or almost every mitzvah, is designed to tear away at this world mask that we have, at this obscurity, and to expose God and or to rid ourselves of the cause of the distortion. The reason why the world is distorted is because we have what's called the Yetzirah. Yetzirah is the word for distortion of reality. It distorts God and, makes the, and, and, and re- shifts and refocus our energy towards everything else but God. Any mitzvah that either embraces the idea of God or rejects and resists the obscurity and dis- distortion of the Yetzirah is... Essentially achieving the same thing. It's achieving that tikkun olam, that exposure around the world. So even they say a mitzvah, a mitzvah like, I don't know, not wearing shotness, right? It's a mitzvah that like, how is this changing the world, right? Not, we don't take wool and linen, we don't mix them together in one garment. <laughs> Fantastic. How was that changing the world? And the answer is, well, maybe it, it's, it's not, it's indirect. But what it does is, it says that man Man's clothing is controlled by God. Well, what does that mean? It means my wardrobe is governed by this entity that I'm trained to not recognize. Thus, the mitzvah makes me recognize it. And every mitzvah is like that. You say, wait a minute. Whoa, suddenly, this mitzvah of shatnas, which seemed perhaps at first glance to be very distant from fixing the world of its all its problems, really is indeed attacking the problem head on. You say, yes, it's not fixing the symptoms of the problem. It's fixing the problem itself. The rule in between is a real stretch. Well, <laughs> I'm saying, and, and you know what? I, I would, and we're told that the one of the linen is a chok. The mitzvah doesn't make any sense to us. But it does make the sense to us in the fact that it makes sense for us to do things 
you know, for this existence of God because that exposes, means this, I think, I would say, ironically, it brings us more towards recognition of God than a mitzvah that makes sense to us. Because a mitzvah that makes sense to us, well, we would do this anyhow, right? Right. You do kindness. Uh, the guy's hitching. Give him a ride. But I would do whole, it even anyhow, even the, regardless of God. The whole idea of kashrut. I mean, uh, uh, um, why, why, why a why animal that splits hoofs and chews its cuds? Uh, you know, why, and you say, and I'll you tell know, you, uh, it's another why, great example. Why not want the other way around? That's I mean, you know. a great example. And, and you know what? If we looked at that one mitzvah, in a vacuum, without this kind of awareness of the bigger picture, we say, is this really changing the world? No. Picking up cigarette butts on the beach is changing the world. And yes, if you have a very narrow vision, you're right. It's just what you're eating or not eating. Well, is it dietary? Is it all about our diet? The answer is what you're saying is 1,000% correct. When we do something or we refrain from doing something because of God, that attacks that engages with the underlying problem that causes all the other problems. So thus... It also helps us to understand that really everything in life for us is a choice. Oh yeah, of course, and that's, that's why life has meaning. Even the small things mm-hmm. about mixing... But me choosing to not eat something mm-hmm. only because God told me to do, mm-hmm. to do that. Well, what does that demonstrate? What does that bring into light in the world? What kind of behavior am I, am I, am I manifesting? The other things that God tells you to do are more likely to get done. Certainly, but it also means that the idea of God is present but in my life. If you violate the, the commandment and do what you're not supposed to do, it still makes you think well, that's why, and, and that's why, even someone who sins, we're told the Jewish writing is replete with this idea that if there's two ways to sin, it's possible to sin and kind of do a mitzvah, which I'm not trying to. Don't take, don't, don't quote me this, right? Don't quote me out of context here. But it's possible to have a sin kind of inspire me to change. Why? Because if I sin, I could sin and ignore God, or I could sin. And, 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 and be wracked with guilt and kind of have this idea of God kind of accompanying me in the weird way in the sin and I feel terrible about it and that kind of propels me to change. And that's why we're told seven times the righteous falls and he gets up. Right? The model that we have, the model that we have is not one of no sin whatsoever. We, you know, we have the ups and downs, of course. And the Yetzirah overcomes us. And we forget about God. But then we do that and suddenly, you know, we, we, we get mobilized and galvanized and energized to change and, and to improve. Why can't we, being that we're all imperfect individuals, why can't we have a hierarchy of what's, of what's more important than other things as far as the we, But we, we do have that. We do have a hierarchy. Um, the question I think that you're, uh, the, the, the problem with doing that is that when people say there's a hierarchy... They'll say, okay, I'll just do the most important ones and I'll ignore everything else. That's the problem with the hierarchy. Uh, Because when you have a hierarchy, you'll say, I'll do just these and I'll ignore everything else. You're essentially giving in to your distortion, to your reality distortion field, Yetzirah. We do have a hierarchy. And in fact, the higher, but the hierarchy is only important if there's a conflict between two of the mitzvahs. Mm -hmm. Thus, we're told. Essay, dochalosase, which means a positive mitzvah overwhelms a negative mitzvah, most negative mitzvahs, regular negative mitzvahs. Thus, uh, uh, in certain instances, if you have a conflict between two mitzvahs, then you, uh, then you uh, look to, you, to your hierarchy to see which one then you have to do and 
you know, in favor uh, of that one over the other one. But the danger of saying there's a hierarchy, we'll say, okay, we'll just, you know, we'll just go to Shul and Yom Kippur. That's the most important day of the year, right? Are you saying we shouldn't go to Shul and Kippur? Of course you should go to Shul and Kippur. But, does the, but if you go to Shul and Kippur, because that's more important, and then you ignore going to the Shul and forgetting about Judaism, religion, and God the rest of the year, that's a problem. <laughs> We were just talking this past Wednesday night, the section where he says, this world and everything in it was created as a tool for us to grow closer to God. And if we use everything in this world properly, the way he God intended for it to be used, mm-hmm. even our most mundane activities mm-hmm. are a means of elevation and and, and perfection. That's right. That means that the realm of mitzvahs, that's right, the realm of mitzvahs mm-hmm. extends even to the kind of permitted things, which is a way of saying not a mitzvah, not a sin, right? It's, it's, it's just behavior, right? Uh, because, you know, if I eat food, I eat breakfast, is that a mitzvah? No, it's breakfast, right? But if I make a blessing before that and I have this cognition of the fact that God gave me food and he loves me, and the fact that I'm doing this to get energized so I could go and teach Torah or study or help, you know, uh, help my wife take care of the kids and send them out, right? Whatever it is, like, you are using that for your big picture. You're linking the permitted with the mitzvah, and that, you know, it all takes upon the status of, of a mitzvah, which is remarkable. So, essentially, it's possible to never stop doing mitzvahs. What does that mean? To never stop fixing the world, to never stop bringing the idea of down to the world. I know when we were in yeshiva, there was this uh, effort to say, uh, there's, a, there's a, a, a prayer that we say at night, right before you go to sleep, hamapil. And what's unique about this prayer, maybe uh, certainly at, at, at first glance, is the fact that when you say that prayer, you finish it, you shouldn't talk. Right? Because you want to create the environment that the last thing you say before you go to sleep is this blessing. I highly recommend if you get your hands on this blessing to read it. A very powerful blessing. So they would say in yeshiva, you're supposed to say hamapil in the base medrash, in the shul, in the house of study. Why? Because, you know, we all need to sleep, right? The problem is you have seven hours or eight hours of sleep and you're not studying Torah. But if the only reason why you're sleeping is because you have to sleep, and otherwise you would be studying Torah, then it's considered as if your sleep is Torah study. But how do you ensure? You've got to ensure that you go from one to the other. You're studying, and then the, I have to sleep? Sorry, I'm going to sleep. Okay. But if I, was not, if I didn't need to sleep, I would continue studying. Thus, you make the hamapil when you're studying. And then you go to sleep, and then that sleep is considered as if you sleep. But if you take a 15-minute break to smoke and schmooze and whatever, you know, to go hang out with your buds, which is probably what I would do. So don't, you know, I'm, I'm of the latter. <laughs> right? But if you do that, then what are you demonstrating? So what are you sleeping because? You're sleeping because you're too tired to continue fraternizing. But if you were able to stay up the whole night, you would fraternize the whole night. So then you have seven hours of fraternization, which is not, nothing wrong necessarily with that, but it's a missed opportunity because that could have accrued towards a mitzvah. So ironically, those 15 minutes, yes, thank you, those 15 minutes, uh, that, you know, that really matters because that influences how the rest of that time that would have spent regardlessly sleeping, regardless when you would have spent sleeping, it, it influences how that is considered. But I want, I want to kind of wrap this all up here, this kind of this model that we have here of what the role of Torah is, what the role of Jewish people is, how, how our mitzvahs that we do 
necessarily, not necessarily in a public fashion, but how they influence the world at large. And they address the major problem of the world uh, head on without trying to stamp all the individual uh, outgrowths. You know, like when you have, you see spiders in your house or you see ants running around, you try to stamp them all out by themselves, you don't fix the problem. You go to the nest and then you fix that and then automatically, de facto, you fix everything else. I want to like have an appreciation here of Abraham because if you look at all these ideas that we're, start, that we're talking about, it really goes all the way back uh, to Abraham. You know, he started this idea. He was the one, the first human to accept upon themselves this mission, this sacred mission, this task, this very vast ta- uh, task uh, of fixing the world and accepted upon himself and his children the responsibility of doing that. And that is why we have Torah. And that's why we're chosen by it. We have been chosen people. As if we're, we're God's favorite kid. No. It means because we were the ones that accepted upon ourselves this mission of fixing the world, that's the reason why we were chosen. It wasn't like we won some sort of lottery. We didn't win a lottery, a spiritual lottery. It's the fact that we were the ones who accepted upon themselves, right? We, as in Abraham, our forebearer, accepted upon himself this mission. That's why we were chosen to do it. And that's why, and you know, I think we look at, at, at Jewish history, and you know, uh, anytime we talk about Jewish history, there's any analysis of Jewish history is going to have kind of the three major ideas that are going to be uh, addressed, because you know, there's this uh, mystery. Number one is the fact that the Jewish people have endured for so long, despite the fact they've been on multiple continents despite the fact that they're not necessarily unified in language or culture or certainly land and citizenship, uh, and the fact that they've been small in number and they have been uh, tormented by a lot of their uh, compatriots and have been exiled from place to place, and yet they survived. And they come back and rebuild the state of Israel. And that's mystery number one. Uh, mystery number two is the fact that you know, the influence of the Jewish people in whatever field, certainly in modern times, uh, in, any, in the sciences, in the mathematics, certainly, but even in the arts and the finance and the business and technology and religion and philosophy. Like every, like it's just incredible how a, such a minute percentage of the world's population can have such an outsized impact on the world. And we, like, we spoke about it earlier, like the idea of progress, which really dominates a lot of modern thinking, um, certainly modern sociology, is really a product of what we've been saying for thousands of years, way before anyone else. Like, remember, the, the, the church became a welfare uh, entity only after their, their, their political and military might was taken away from them. That's when they made that pivot. Um, you know, one of the great business pivots of all time, of course. But that's when they made that change. Because 700 years ago, you know, the church wasn't obsessed with welfare. You know, it's a new thing. And I think it's remarkable the fact that we have been saying things for so long. And now, finally, the world's come to appreciate that as being true and has accepted upon themselves to be partners with us in, towards, you know, in, the, you know, in this effort towards achieving this, uh, this, this goal. So our influence is just uh, you know, over the top. Uh, and, of course, anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism is a great mystery because any rational explanation of anti-Semitism fall short. Uh, because any reason why you say the Jews are hated, 
I will show you a society in which the Jews do not display said characteristic, and yet the results are the same. We say that, that anti-Semitism is the only way to ensure continuity. Because if you're going to be a traveling salesman, as the Jewish people have been historically, of ideas throughout the world, we're exiled. We're exiled on purpose because that's the only way for us to achieve our mission. We influence and we exile. We're influenced and we exile. You know, you know, we influence and we move on. The only way for us to not lose our national character, to not lose the special feeling that makes us unique, to not forget about the fact that we have a sacred chosen mission and we're the sense of Abraham and we have his genes to change the world, is if when we start getting too close to our host nation, there's this pushback. And no, you're different, you're Jewish, and thus, you know, you're not one of us. Let's get you out of here. And it's not rational. And yes, there may be arguments made why people hate the Jews, but those are all excuses because, you know, those reasons don't hold up to the test, to the litmus test. The real reason why we say as Jews is the reason why we're hated is because that's the way to ensure we'll survive. And indeed, these uh, two mysteries of our endurance and our hate and, the, and our, and our anti-Semitism, they're really linked together because the only reason why we have endured is because uh, there's this phenomenon that appears throughout history and that pushes us away, repels us from the Gentiles from, and, and from losing, uh, you know, getting... Uh, mixed up into this uh, into the melting pot, so to speak, uh, of, of the nations. Using that logic, then we should be in for a very rough time in the United States, which has been the most welcoming nation on earth. Well, it's like Germany in the twenties. Well, yeah, I'm saying it's. So I, I, I know people that are really terrified of this because every time in history this has happened. Uh, that we've been welcomed and we've been so integrated into society, it has happened. I'm not saying it will happen. I think the United States is, 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 is different, perhaps, that these arguments made. Uh, that I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, uh, it's not unreasonable to make that ass- uh, assertion, certainly not for a student of history, of Jewish history. Uh, you know, we had, but we had, remember, we had 700 years in Spain, right? Mm-hmm. Is it possible we could have 700 years in the United States? Maybe. You know, we've had 100 years now in, in the United States. We had 700 years in Spain. More than that. Well, sir, well, yes, but the first major, major wave of immigration, it came in the 1880s. Uh, yeah, of course, the Jews were here all, right at the beginning, right? George Washington. And there's the argument uh, that uh, people make that uh, Columbus was a converso. Columbus was a... Was a Solomon. <laughs> but either way, I think that... Go ahead. Washington, in his first year as president, uh, addressed Island, the yes. Rhode Island synagogue yes. and, and said how the, the, we, we're grateful for the gifts of the Hebrews. Uh, I'm paraphrasing it, but that's part of it. Yeah, and, and I, I'm not saying that, I'm not, I'm not going, I know people will say this, you got to get yourself ready. I have a friend who told me, I have my bag, and I have cash, and I have all my passports, I'm ready to go just in case, to drive to Mexico. I, I, you know, I spoke to someone like that recently. And I'm not saying he's unreasonable because historically, you know, he hasn't been that off. No one believed in the 1920s, certainly not in the 1910s, certainly not in the 1900s, uh, that Germany would turn into what it did. And even the 1930s, no one believed it. Uh, and you know what? Maybe in hindsight, they should have realized what was going on. But it's hard to think of big picture when you're, when you're living a life, and, right? But it's not unreasonable what you're saying. Yeah. But uh, I'm not saying I believe that that will happen. 
but then I'm just saying it's a logical extension. Yes. But in another way, certainly the I would United say States is different probably in any place we've ever lived before and does give us as a people a unique opportunity to heal the world. And all, and also I mean, we're not com- we're not compelled to abandon our religion like we were in most other places. Mm-hmm. There isn't this religious conflict as well. Um, and thus, I think it's possible that, you, like you say, it is different. Yeah. In, historically, in other countries where, where Jews have been, were they allowed to have um, hold offices in the government? Some places, some places it was fantastic. Like you say, we, the aforementioned Spain. You know, you can run for office and, yeah, and Spain. We had we had uh, we had autonomy. Like the the, the, the courts, uh, uh, the courts recognized the Jew, you know the Jewish community. Certainly, in Babylon historically, they, they had could religious. They, could they hold oh yeah, they held high offices. Office. Elected. I don't know about elected. Elected. Election. Not ele- elections are a new a new way of of mm-hmm. of this society. But they you know like. Uh, in in Spain, they were like the Abarbanel, uh, certainly Reb Shmuel Hanadid. These are famous, famous great Jewish leaders and scholars who were held very high positions in 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 the king in the in the kingdom. Uh, that being said, uh, elected government, you know, that's a re- recent thing. Um, but yeah, I'm saying the, the fact that we could be hold high positions mm-hmm. even in very hostile environments. You know, uh, uh, Benjamin Disraeli was a prime minister of. Of England, but he wasn't um, Jewish at that point. well, you're but still he, Jewish. He got tarred with yeah, uh, so Joseph. yeah, well, Joseph certainly <laughs> yes. Um, so, I, and I, I think that this really gives us an appreciation of, of Abraham, but also gives us, I think, greater meaning for life as a Jew, and, and kind of seeing how what we have been talking about is actually we're actually having success. And we're so used to being in the mindset of, like, let's work, 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 work. But I think it's time to reflect and look at what really we're trying to accomplish and, indeed, how far along the way we, we have gotten uh, and how our ideas have really permeated the world at large, but also a recognition of our ideas and why, you know, the ideas of, of Torah and mitzvahs and observance of those mitzvahs, how they really correlate towards fixing the world, towards the Alam. And, indeed, in a weird way, uh, the argument uh, is, 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 is proper to make that doing Torah, uh, observing Torah and, and, and fulfilling the mitzvahs indeed contribute towards fixing the problem and not necessarily trying to deal with the symptoms. And indeed, really all of Jewish history, beginning from Abraham until today, is a, uh, you know, a constant uh, engagement within this, uh, this issue. And indeed, if you look at the anomalies of, of, of Jewish history, they could be answered when you understand the premise or the, 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 the mission, uh, the goal of our nation as a whole. Uh, a little bit shorter than usual, but I uh, look forward to seeing you all next week. Quick question, yes. Um, you mentioned um, a few sentences ago having said that we're experiencing success in the U.S., so could that in any way, because there's not anti-Semitism? Well, to say there's not anti-Semitism, that's a mistake, because... Well, no, I know there we, is, but, well, but not overwhelmingly so. Right. And we need that in order to stay vibrant. Well, we don't, we don't need that. It's just, it's a mechanism. Okay. We don't want that. But it's a no. mechanism that's in place that assures, uh, uh, yes, the continuity of the Jewish people. But to say that Jew, there's no anti-Semitism in America, I know that in our society now... Certainly, uh, in the most recent months, there's been this fear of Islamophobia in America. Yes. And that's real. But you know which group 
right, is the recipient of more hate crimes in America than any other group. It's still the Jews. It's still the Jews. And that's not a story. That's not a story at all. But that is still true today. 2015, there was more hate crimes against Jews than any other group. Huh? Yeah, it's unbelievable. But yes, of course, it's still not the overt hostilities that we have been used to historically. Yeah, but you wouldn't hear Obama say. Oh, of course not. Everyone's like, oh, it's all about the Muslims. we got to worry about the Muslims. And, of course, I'm not trying to say that we should hate the Muslims, God forbid, right? I don't say that we shouldn't hate anyone. But I'm saying is that the notion that, you know, the Jews today are, you know, you know clean and, 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 and we, you know, we're, we're, we're safe from any anti-Semitism, that's not true. Like, in America. From some of the Christian denominations that are really... Pro-Israel, yes. yes. Pro-Israel, pro-Jewish people, and yes. And the more fantastic. secular Jews look with a score, you know, with know a that. very skeptical about that. But you don't know about is. those people from the Northeast with the New York values. <laughs> New York values. Okay, okay guys. Lots of fun. Uh, and, and I think it's nice sometimes, because I, I feel like a lot of these ideas we've spoken about before, but kind of to put them all together and to see how this model actually operates and how all the pieces fit in with each other, I think is very valuable uh, to know, uh, to, you know, to know why our life as Jews still has meaning uh, uh, till this very day. All the best. I look forward to seeing you all next week. Mm-hmm. Have a wonderful rest of your Thank Sunday. You. Thank, you. Thank you, Rabbi.